I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning in the Word of God, Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and the parallel text in the New Testament will be Acts 2, but we'll go there a bit later. At this time, I'm going to ask you to stand with me out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of God. Psalm 16, here's God's Word. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all of my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. As you read along in the word this morning here in Psalm 16 with me, I'm going to bet that you battled the sense and impulse to hear two different voices. You see, the first voice is fairly obvious for us to grasp hold of and to sense in verse 1. It's the prayer request of, of David, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And there's no confusion about the identity of the speaker, which voice is speaking here, because the psalm title itself this morning here tells us this psalm is a miktam of David. That means it's a literary device or a, a poem of David. And so David begins the psalm with a, a very comprehensive prayer request to the Lord, preserve me. And that request is followed up, as they often are in the Psalms and so many other places in Scripture, with the grounds of the prayer. And the grounds of that prayer are an obvious and explicit reference to faith and trust in God. You can see it very easily here in verse 1, for example, because he says, Preserve me, O God, for I am trusting in you, or I'm seeking refuge in you. Very easy then to pick up on that first voice. But as you come into verse 8, it feels like the faint sounds of another voice, doesn't it? I suppose we could say this morning, verse 8 still could be David speaking. I set the Lord continually before me. I think a fair-minded person could say that. I think a fair-minded person even could, I, I would say, sympathetically argue that verse 9 could be David. My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also 
well, securely, maybe David, but when you get to verse 10, you can't help but hear another voice. Because here we read, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. As you begin to take up those words of verse 10, it's very obvious to us that another voice has entered into the psalm here because of the scope of the promise is just too vast and too wide to refer to David. After all, how could it be said of David that God didn't abandon his body to the grave? Well, the sneaky suspicion that there are two voices in this psalm is confirmed for us in the New Testament. Because as Peter, on that great day of Pentecost, begins to explain the phenomena of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, moves from Joel 2 to Psalm 16 to proclaim Christ as the resurrected Savior who's been enthroned in glory and poured out this overflow of the Holy Spirit. What he does there in that psalm, or rather in that sermon, is put his finger on Psalm 16, 8 and following. And he very explicitly says, for David speaks of him. That's Christ. And after he quotes that in verse 29, he, he picks up on this again. And he says, this doesn't speak of David because his body is with us today. He being a prophet looked forward. In other words, what Peter tells you, what the Word of God tells you, what the Spirit of God has inspired in the Scripture tells you this morning, there are two voices at work here in this psalm. One of them is David, and one of them is Christ. And that tells us then that our psalm, Psalm 16 this morning, moves from prayer to proclamation of promise. It moves from the prayer of David, preserve me, which we're going to see in a moment, is a comprehensive prayer for preservation in body and soul, and it moves to God through Jesus Christ, giving the answer and the resolution in the proclamation of the answer of promise. You see, David may well not have known just exactly the fullness of the extent of the preservation he prayed for, but God, through the Holy Spirit, supervened and led this prayer for preservation forward through Psalm 16 to be answered in the most comprehensive sense of blessing, which is fullness of resurrection life in Jesus Christ. That's what Psalm 16 is really about then. God taking the prayer of David and answering it with a prayer of ultimate preservation and blessing in the Lord Jesus, and that promise is yours this morning by faith in the Savior Jesus Christ. So we're going to take that grand theme of Psalm 16 and break it down into two parts, faith's prayer and faith's promise. Faith's prayer and faith's promise. And we begin with faith's prayer, and you can see in your Bible this morning in verse 1, in that initial clause, preserve me. Oh, God, let's think about that term. And I wish I had time to just sort of walk you through the word of God this morning, just taking that word preserve me and show you just how rich it is. But I think I can do a couple of things by broad outline to give you a sense of how expansive 
the sense of this term is. And the first thing that we learn about this word preserve is it's a military term. Shamar. It means to preserve by guarding. And the very first martial or military use of this term, shamar, which is translated preserve here in the word of God, is found in Genesis 3.24. And it speaks of the cherubim, the cherubim, which God placed at the entry point to the Garden of Eden. And there he had the cherubim, that is the angel of the Lord, stationed with a sword in his hand, guarding the way to the tree of life. So it is a military term. It is about guarding at a post to protect others. And so this particular word gets taken up and is applied in an official sense to military officers who had the responsibility of guarding the city walls and guarding the country and even guarding the temple precincts. So it speaks of a physical kind of preservation, a bodily kind of preservation. And maybe one of those memorable uses of this term, at least in the Psalms, is found in Psalm 121. And we love this psalm. We call it the Traveler's Psalm. It is, it is a part of those psalms of ascent, which were the voice of the pilgrims, the people of God of the Old Testament, going up to Jerusalem for worship in the temple on the assigned feast day. And a part of that journey required them to go through hills and mountains where they were beset not only by physical difficulties due to the terrain, but due to robbers and vagabonds and thieves. And so Psalm 121 opens up with this great request there as the psalmist cries out, From whence comes my help? From whence comes my aid? And the psalmist answers it immediately. No sooner is the question answer, asked than the, than the prayer is answered. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. But to assure himself, that would have been adequate. It would have been fully adequate. The psalm could have ended right there in a sense. To have the Lord who is the maker of the heaven and earth be your help is case closed. But the psalmist goes on to say that his help is in the Lord who keeps. And he says of the Lord who keeps, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. And there's your word, keeps, shamar, guard. This is about physical protection. As David cries out to the Lord, he prays for the body, preserve me. Which gives us some sense and indication of the grim situation that confronted him, which caused him to utter the prayer. But first of all, as he prays for the help of God, he prays for the physical preservation of the Lord. But there's also a spiritual component to this word, shamar. And you already know it yourself. Because you hear the priestly benediction week in and week out at our church. That great priestly benediction of Numbers chapter 6 verse 24. Where we read these great words. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious 
unto you. The Lord bless you and keep you. There's your word. The Lord bless you and keep you. Same word that we have here is translated preserve is there. And yet in the scope of that benediction, we know this is about spiritual blessing because the Lord himself interprets it that way. As he gives this benediction to Moses, he says, so they shall invoke my name upon them and I will bless them. This is about spiritual blessing then. God ordained a means for the spiritual blessing of the people of God so that when they heard that word, bless and keep and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, the people of God would know that the Lord is placing upon them, on their very head at the end of worship, the proclamation of every blessing imaginable of body and of soul. And so this is a comprehensive prayer here that David begins with. As he pours out his soul in agony, preserve me, O God, he seeks blessing of body and soul. It's a prayer born out of wholehearted faith, though. That's the other point that we take here, faith expressed. We're seeing faith's prayer. It's in that uh, particular uh, request, preserve me. But now I want you to think about the faith the faith which is expressed in that. And it's very evident to us because no sooner does David bring forth this prayer to the Lord than he immediately adds to it the ground for, for, as he says here, I take refuge in you. We love to point out the connectors, the therefores and the buts and so forth. Here's one right here. This for is a is setting forth in explicit terms a link between request and the ground. What motivates and drives David to petition the Lord in this way? For, I'm trusting in you. Can somebody move their car out of our driveway? I'll have it. Thank you. And so here, you see the faith expressed. Take refuge. Take refuge. There's tremendous richness and depth in this term as well, but there's one particular use of this term which will sweep out its spiritual sense for us when we discern what David means when he says, take refuge. And, and that verse is Psalm 91.4, a verse that you're well familiar with. There the psalmist says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you seek refuge. You'll notice here what it is to take refuge. To take refuge in the Lord is to seek protection under his wings. And of course, the reference to the wings there is the reference to the wings of the cherubim, which were set forth in sculpture form atop the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll remember from the description of the law that the wings stretched towards the center of the Ark of the Covenant to the place which is called the mercy seat. And there above the flat surface of the ark, there was an empty space between those wings, which was called the meeting place of God with his people. That's where the blood was splattered to indicate that there was a reconciliation between God and his people. And so by David saying that he takes uh, refuge in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty is to say he takes refuge in Christ. 
The refuge that's spoken of here is this grand expression of faith in God and His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. To see He's trusting in the Lord is to say, His hope is well-founded upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the perfection of His shed blood. So that's your first expression of faith. And as you walk through the rest of the psalm here, through verse 7, you see a series of expressions of faith. And we don't have to spend the exact amount of time on each one, just enough for us to see that as you move forward now through verse 7, you encounter one expression of faith after the other. So, for instance, you have expression of faith in verse 2. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Twice here you have the word Lord. If you go back into verse 1, you have God. So we have three different terms here to speak of the divine. In two verses, it's as if David is reaching for every word in the dictionary, which is a title for God. And he uses them all to say, I identify in every way with the Lord. He is my Lord, and I am his subject, and I am his servant. This is a full-throated expression of faith and trust in God. As he moves on, he speaks of his trust in the form of exclusive worship. I can concede that there's a little... Oh, I don't know, a difficulty perhaps in the arrangement or the connection of ideas in verses 3 through 4. But you can see in verse 3 he speaks of delighting uh, in the majestic ones, and it's obviously the people of God who he's speaking about. But as you see it in connection with verse 4 and David's rejection of false worship, I, I think this is uh, David's way of saying that he worships the Lord exclusively, and one way that we know he worships the Lord exclusively is because of his delight in the saints, in the people of God. You see, what makes the people of God special is that they have been redeemed and consecrated as priests under the Lord to worship him. His delight is in them, not because of the peculiarity of their personalities, but because of their faith, because of their purpose, because of what they do. Because of how they live, they are worshipers of God. And so he says he delights in them, and then contrarily, on the other hand, we're told here that he rejects the false pagan worship of the people around him. He says sorrows are for those who barter for another God. He says he will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will he take their vain names upon his lips. In the rejection of the false pagan worship, there is a declaration of his exclusive commitment to worship God. That's trust. Especially in antiquity, because to worship the gods was to level the playing field for your life. If you know anything about antiquity and its worship and its idolatry, it was about maximizing personal responsibility or personal blessing by worshiping and serving all of the gods whom you could so that they would be tipped towards your favor if you needed it. But David says, I worship one God. And that's the Lord. I won't take their name upon my lips. Expression of faith. 
You see expression of faith and total provision in verses 5 through 6. Again, it may feel just a little bit <clears throat> unfamiliar or perhaps awkward, but I want you to notice the way he speaks of the Lord here. The Lord is my portion, my inheritance, my cup. You support my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. You know, what's interesting. If you take each of those terms that are here, portion, inheritance, cup, lions, heritage, all of those are from the book of Joshua. And what is the book of Joshua about? Well, the book of Joshua is about God leading the 12 tribes in conquest of the land and then distributing the tribal territories inheritances to the tribes. So all of that language is drawn from there because that was what was foundational to a prosperous life in Israel. The prosperity of a of a member of the people of God in the Old Testament was directly linked and connected to the land that God gave them. Without it, there was no hope economically. But here, David is not rejoicing in his particular portion of the tribal territory within Judah. He says, the Lord is mine. In other words, by applying all of those terms to the Lord, he is saying that his hope for Complete sustainment is not in the things, not in the tribal territories, not in the apportionment of the land. It's in Christ. God in Christ is his portion. Jesus picks up on that thread, I would argue, in Matthew chapter 6. You remember that great portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to his people, don't be anxious. He says, don't have a concern for what you will wear or what you will eat or where you will sleep. And when you hear that, you think that's the most natural thing in the world to be concerned about. It's the most natural thing in the world for a human being, for a person to have concern for what they will eat. But Jesus, as he's teaching the saints there, says, I don't want you to be concerned. And to help his people grasp hold of why they shouldn't have a concern is he turns to the creation around him. And he looks at the creatures and he looks at the creation. And he says, have you ever noticed that the birds have all the food that they can eat and they don't store up anything in a barn? He said, have you ever seen the lilies of the field as they are arrayed in all of their glory? They never asked for it. He said, even Solomon in all of his glory wasn't as glorious as the flowers of the field. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is saying, if creatures in creation who don't, act, who don't exercise any faith in the Lord have everything that they need, how much more will you have? your daily bread. And Jesus caps his point off with those words that you learned on your mama's knee. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That is precisely what David is speaking about here. God is his portion. The kingdom of God is his portion. Jesus Christ is his portion. And because all of that is true, 
He trusts that everything that he needs will be provided. They'll be added unto him. That's an expression of faith. You see the final expression of faith and trust in the Lord in verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I wonder if it struck you as we walk through these series of expressions of faith and trust to ask the question, where did it come from? After all, didn't David begin this prayer or this psalm with a prayer, preserve me? A prayer of agony? A prayer born of fear? A prayer born of difficulty? A prayer born of serious need? And yet as you read through the psalm, it seems as if there's no concern in his heart at all. How does this match? He's pleading with God for preservation, and then he's sitting here giving a sermon on trust. The answer is found right here in verse 7 in this powerful statement. The Lord has counseled me. The Lord has counseled me. See, what David is saying is that God, by his spirit, took the word of God and he pressed it upon the innermost depths of his being, upon his soul. He took the sharp sword of the word of God and he sunk it deep within him. And he shed the light and the grace and the truth of God's word and promise upon the interior depths of David's person so that the faith which we has was not just bold talk. It was a reality. It was grounded in his soul. And the reason I know that is because of what he says. My mind instructs me. You know what the Hebrew says there? My kidneys. Wonderful English transliteration. Right? How about some dynamic equivalents for us today? My kidneys. It would make no sense to us at all to say our kidneys instruct us. But in antiquity, this was thought to be the seat of the person. Deep down in the inside of the person. The control center of the person. You see, David is saying here that God has counseled him in the interior depths of soul. And because of that, that instruction, that illumination, that interior grace planted in his heart flows out to the rest of his life. And so in the midst of the, of the storm that surrounds him, He is reposed and called and taking refuge in God. The Lord has counseled him. He's not concerned. Before we move on, people of God, I, I'm struck here to make the point of how thoroughly and comprehensively David expresses his faith in the Lord and how he leans upon God for everything. But what I think is important for us to lay hold of so that we do the same for ourselves is to ask how. How does he do that? 
And the answer seems to me to be bound up with that great profession of faith. I said to myself, verse 2, you are my Lord. You see, that confession of faith tells us exactly how it is we appropriate this strength and confidence of faith for ourselves. It is for us to be consciously aware that both in life and in death, both in body and soul, we are not our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all of our sins and redeemed us from all the power of the devil, and preserves me, that without the will of the Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Our confidence is not bold talk. Our confidence is grounded in the fact that Christ is our Lord, and he owns us. And so you are entitled this morning to the deepest kind of confidence and assurance in God, the kind that David has here, to be able to say, my Lord, and because he is my Lord, I have a refuge. Because he is my Lord, I worship him alone. Because he is my Lord, I can say he is my portion. Because he is my Lord, I can be assured of my provision because when he purchased us with his precious blood, he determined to be our keeper. We don't have a faith full of vain platitudes. It's not our calling and duty to encourage each other with empty sounding words. Our calling is to encourage one another and to ourselves be encouraged by God's word and God's promise and God's Christ. You have hope. You have consolation. You have fortification and strength for your soul because it's been owned and purchased by Jesus Christ and because he's your Lord, he's your refuge. And that means he'll supply you with everything. Preserve me, O God, body and soul, because I belong to the faithful Savior, Jesus. That's faith's prayer, not those faith's promise. Here is where we sort of pivot. We've had prayer offered, and now we begin to see prayer answered. We've seen David speak in his person as a member of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is where I would happily agree with that great 17th century Puritan expositor Matthew Poole who makes the very insightful, clear, and concise statement about what we have here. He says David has Christ in his eye being inspired by the Holy Spirit. David has Christ in his eye being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that is just simply to say here that pool is saying that this psalm now finds its resolution and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The prayer was for total preservation. The answer to prayer is comprehensive preservation through Jesus Christ and particularly his resurrection from the dead. And this is where we turn now into the New Testament to see here that our interpretation of the word of God comes from the word of God. 
Because as you move on into Acts chapter 2, verse 29, you can see here that Peter is applying this psalm to David. Not to David, but to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 29, Brethren, and they confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You see here, he's coming back to his audience. He calls them brethren. He's just been quoting from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. He said right before he did that, that all of this was David speaking about Christ. And so now, first of all, Peter makes the common sense argument as he expounds the prophecy and its fulfillment in Christ. He makes the very common sense argument that it can't be about David. He says it can't be about David. Why? Well, because he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Think about where Peter is. He is in Jerusalem. He's got an audience of thousands before him. It's the day of Pentecost. These are the most devout Jews under the sun. And he's preaching to them from the word of God. And he expounds unto them Jesus Christ from the Psalms. And here he quotes from Psalm 16. And he says, this can't be about David. All of us know that. Because David's bones are in the tomb. See how he's playing on the literalness of Psalm 16. We all know he died. The word of God tells us that. We all know he's buried. The word of God tells us that. And we all know where his tomb was. And believe me, everybody in the first century of Peter's day knew exactly where David's tomb was. It was something of a tourist attraction in Jerusalem at the time. He says, any of you, if you're going to confirm this for yourself, you can march right out to the David's tomb. His bones are there. Clearly, commonsensically, then, he says, this can't be referring to David. And then he goes on to explain that it was never about David. It was about Christ. Notice as the argument goes on into verse 30. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Clearly here he's referencing David as a prophet and a particular oath, that is the oath of the Davidic covenant. You could read about it for yourself in Psalm 132 and 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, that God promised he would lift up one of his seed and place him upon his throne eternally. Peter said that was all in his mind. He brings us into the life and the mind of David here. And then in 31, he goes on to say, he looked ahead and he spoke, here it is, of the resurrection of Christ. I told you there's two voices that play in Psalm 16. There is the voice of David in his prayers and his expression of faith and confidence of the Lord. And then there's a second voice, this voice of God in Christ giving us prayers, answer, and its hope. It's in the fulfillment of the bodily resurrection of Christ, as Peter goes on to say in verse 32, promise fulfilled this Jesus God raised from the dead. This Jesus. By the way, he's already mentioned Jesus back in verse 22 and 23, right? As that affable, prophetic, healing, miracle-working man that everybody knew about. He said, that one, the one you strung up on a cross between thieves and you laid in a grave, this Jesus, God raised up, and this psalm here 
prophesied that this would happen. What is faith's promise this morning, people of God? Faith's promise is, first of all, that God made good on his word of prophecy and he actually did raise Christ from the dead. But faith's promise is for you also this morning. As we hear of the proclamation of the fulfillment of this prophecy and promise in Jesus Christ, that promise is proclaimed to you. That is the promise which is held out to your faith. And there's great power in this to, to drive it home to us in order to grasp hold of the force of the power in Peter's argument. We just need to circle back in the context for a moment. In the context of Peter's proclamation of the hope and the power of this promise is located in verse 23 as he introduces the topic and he describes Jesus Christ as crucified and dead. There's no other way to interpret dead than dead. Dead doesn't mean Almost gone. It doesn't speak of a deprivation of consciousness. It doesn't mean on life support. It means just what you've seen on the television. With the trucks backed up to the hospitals that have freezers inside where the bodies of the deceased are stacked. Dead. That was the same condition of Christ. Without that first fact... The declaration of resurrection is a meaningless proclamation. The force and the power of the proclamation of the resurrection is, first of all, that Jesus Christ died. And there's something that Peter says here that is really powerful in his description about it. He speaks of him being held in death's power. And the verb there means to seize or to grasp in the clutch. I don't know how many times you yourself have walked through a graveyard, but it is impossible to not be struck by this fact that there is a powerful hand holding the dead. No one who gets placed on that side of the grass comes back. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. But he says something that really grips us when he said it was impossible for death to clutch Christ and hold him under its power. Why? Piece it all together for yourself here because it's a, it's a marvelous statement as it reads here. Verse 24, God raised him from, an, from up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power as he says, for David says of him. He speaks very realistically of the death of Christ. And he says, God raised him. He unloosed it. <laughs> that is the idea of unloosing the shackles of death. And he raised him since it was impossible, he says, for death to raise him. That's the last thing you think of when somebody dies. Is that impossible that death would hold them? That's the only thing we know of is death holding people. But Peter's argument is that it was impossible for death to hold him for. And what is the reason? 
David says of him. And he quotes Psalm 60. The reason it was impossible for death to hold Christ is prophetic necessity. God declared it would not happen. God declared that the bones and the body of the Holy One would not decay. Peter proclaims the fulfillment. And as we're apprehending faith's promise this morning, people of God, that's what's so important for us to grasp here about Peter's own proclamation of the certain assurance and hope of the resurrection. Because just as certainly as it was impossible for death to hold Christ, so it's impossible for death to hold you when you are in Jesus Christ. Paul has this great statement about the hope of the resurrection that's in 1 Corinthians 15, and you can look it up later, but he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, he says, As as, uh, as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There's your promise right there. God dealing with humanity in two Adams. First Adam we die. Second Adam, Jesus Christ is life. Now here's how he puts it. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. You know what that first fruit means? It's an Old Testament metaphor which was applied to the harvest. The first fruit offering was brought in at the beginning of the, of the harvest as an offering to the Lord, but also as a symbol of the fact that just as the first portion of the harvest came in, so the whole harvest will be brought in by grace. For Paul to apply that to Jesus Christ is to tie our destiny of resurrection to Christ's past resurrection. It is the forged and inseparable link and connection between Christ's victory over the tomb and our coming resurrection through the power of Christ. At the last day. So we take assurance this morning. When we think about the hope. And the promise set forth before faith here this morning. There is real resurrection for us. There is bodily resurrection for all those who are in Christ. And the assurance and the certainty. And the hope that you have. Is prophetic necessity. Just as prophetic necessity was the reason for Christ's resurrection, according to Peter's proclamation, so prophetic necessity is the reason for the hope that you have of your own. That seems to me a great hope for us today. You see, there's a lot of talk about death around us. There's a lot of fear of death around us. And maybe by God's grace and providence, it doesn't come knocking at your door through this plague today or tomorrow or maybe not at all during this whole season. But here's one fact. Not one of us will escape death. So whether it comes today or next week or a year from now or 40 years from now, none of us will outrun its legs. 
Our hope then is not in the vaccine. Our hope isn't a vitamin or pill that extends life even further. Our hope is not that somehow we get to Mars and it's an environment free of contamination somehow and people live very long lives. That's the false hope the world is offering everybody today. Just wait for a vaccine. Wait for some new medical procedure or treatment. The Bible doesn't offer that hope. What the Bible offers is the hope of real life, resurrection life, in Jesus Christ. David prayed for preservation. He got a great promise. A comprehensive promise. His life would be tied to Christ. Because it's anchored in Christ, he would emerge in life by God's power. Faith's promise is resurrection, and faith's promise is fullness of life. Look at verse 11 of your text in Psalm 16. I think it's marvelous that this is included here. Because it says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. I want you to seize, first of all, on that phrase, path of life. There's some debate in the commentators and the literature about whether this is natural life or what is it. It's very obvious this morning to us people of God that it's not natural life. It's eternal life. It's very positioning after the declaration of the promise of bodily resurrection ensures that this is speaking of resurrection life and eternal life. But what I want you to notice here is the nature of that life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures. This is about eternal life. Literally, the text says, in the presence of your face. This is ultimate blessing mediated through Jesus Christ to those who are raised unto life with him. And these aren't the temporal and passing and fleeting pleasures which our age chases. I want you to think this morning with me, people of God, of some of the earthly benefits and blessings that you savor the most. And then having thought of them, ask yourself a question, how long do they last? That's not what this text says. It doesn't say they'll be for a moment or even a lifetime. It says they're forevermore. Faith's promise here is resurrection and eternal life with God in Jesus Christ. Pleasures forevermore. Blessings at his right hand. David couldn't even conceive of this kind of answer to his very dramatic prayer. Preserve me, O God. But yet this was God's answer to the prayer of his servant. Nothing less than the most full and comprehensive and complete kind of blessing imagined. Life in Jesus Christ lived to its fullness. That's resurrection hope. That's Christian hope. That's gospel hope. 
That's our hope. As we walk away from our text this morning, I just want to take one thing home by way of application because I can't help but see that it's here in this text. And that thing that I lay hold of is this connection between prayer and the obtaining of great promise in Jesus Christ. We said it again and again that our text begins with a powerful and pressing and dramatic prayer preserved. And it concludes with a powerful proclamation of comprehensive gospel hope. But the thing of it is, as we said, the prayer was about blessing for body and soul. One of the things that I say for our own application this morning, something we take away here for our own prayer life right now in our very time of need, is that David doesn't lead us to pray either or prayers. David doesn't lead us to pray either we ask God for spiritual help or we ask God for physical help. Either we ask for grace or we ask for his physical protection. Either we ask for enjoying of the Holy Spirit or we ask God to give us money or a job right now. He prays, preserve me. It's a prayer for body. It's a prayer for soul. It's a both and prayer. And I know that some of you who are listening, and perhaps you're not here with us physically, but you're here with us spiritually, and you're listening. Some of you are struggling, and you're deeply concerned about your place. You've lost your job or you're underemployed and you are struggling mightily and you are concerned about your health and you're concerned about your family. Well, I want you to know this morning, we've given a very careful exposition to Psalm 16 and its prayer requests and its promise. And what I want to bring home for you in our application as we conclude here is you have every reason to hope and trust in the Lord and to lift up prayer to God. And know that as you ask in faith, you don't have to pray either or. You pray both and. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Because Jesus owns us body and soul. Because he is our Lord. He preserves us body and soul. Lay hold of Christ and every blessing in him. As you lift up your prayers in faith and do so with the greatest assurance. That as you take refuge in God. He'll be a shield and fortress to you.